From Greensburg to Port Allegheny, Camp Hill to Waynesburg, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, Governor Josh Shapiro has delivered his first budget address outlining the policy priorities of his new administration. Nathan Benefield of the Commonwealth Foundation is here with analysis. The Center for Independent Employees has notched a few wins in its efforts to help independent employees oppressed by labor unions. Keith Williams from the Center is here with details. And it is budget season in both Washington and Harrisburg. President Biden wants to raise taxes. Governor Shapiro is talking tax cuts. Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania has this week's Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to Nathan Benefield from the Commonwealth Foundation in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. The state house seat left vacant by the resignation of Linda Schlegel-Culver, who recently took a seat in the state Senate, will be filled during a special election to be held on May 16th, the date of the 2023 primary. The district includes Northumberland and Montour counties and leans heavily Republican. Pennsylvania voters will fill a key open seat on the state's Supreme Court this November. But first, voters in both parties will have competition for their nominations in the May primary. Democrat Superior Court Judges Dan McCaffrey and Deborah Kunzelman will vie for their party's nomination, while Montgomery County Common Pleas Court Judge Carolyn Carluccio will compete with Commonwealth Court Judge Patricia McCullough for the Republican nomination. The high court currently has a 4-2 Democrat majority, with one seat open due to the death of former Chief Justice Max Baer. State Representative Mike Zabel, a Democrat from Delaware County, submitted his resignation this past week after a number of women, including a female lawmaker, accused him of sexual harassment. Zabel had been under pressure to resign for weeks after a lobbyist for a major state labor union accused him of sexual harassment. After she went public, House Democrats dragged their feet on taking action, so other women stepped forward to accuse the former lawmaker. Zabel's resignation leaves the state house with two vacant seats and Democrats with a slim one-seat majority. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. Governor Josh Shapiro this past week delivered his first budget address to a joint session of the state legislature. It was very different from his predecessor's first budget address. Here with analysis is Nathan Benefield. He is senior vice president with the Commonwealth Foundation. Nathan, welcome back to Lincoln Radio Journal. Nate, eight years ago when Governor Tom Wolf gave his budget address, he proposed Actually, more tax increases than the governors in all other states combined. This was the first budget address for Governor Shapiro. Did he take a different approach? Yeah, I think it's it's quite a bit different than, than Governor Wolf's first budget address. Well, the, yeah, like Governor Wolf came in and proposed massive tax hikes, income tax, sales tax, uh, you name it, and ended up you know ended up being fighting for for more than a year on that budget, never getting it done until uh, the following fiscal year. Shapiro's budget. Uh, it does include a lot of, of spending increases, but it doesn't include any, any tax and tax increases. You know, it spends more than I think we should and is still out of balance, but doesn't 
drain uh, all the reserve funds right away. That doesn't go as far as uh, some progressives wanted. Um, and really sets the stage for, I think, negotiations with divided government that we have in, in Pennsylvania with uh, a and basically evenly split House, uh, Republican-controlled Senate, and the Democratic governor. Um, he's really setting it up for, hey, we can we can negotiate over things and, and setting kind of his marker on what he wants to see. Um, but certainly there's been responses already on what Republicans want to see. And I think this is a budget that uh, can be negotiated. And I, I think he wants something that they actually can eventually get, get done and uh, get a final product done. Um, and not have uh, prolonged uh, fights that previous governors, including Tom Wolf, were plagued within their first year. Isn't that in and of itself, Nate, a bit of a different approach that this governor put something out there and said, hey, this is a starting point, we're going to talk? Yeah, I think it, it is a different approach. Josh Shapiro, I think, been a former state legislator himself, is probably a more pragmatic um, approach to it. Um, it also is a unique situation that the state found itself in of while we are um, having this issue of a structural deficit where we're spending more than revenues, because of all this federal uh, COVID relief funds, state's sitting on, um, it's going to be almost $7 billion in the state checking account. So this is a good situation to, to be in, other than there's this temptation to, hey, we've got money in the checking account, we should spend it all now, uh, even though that's, that's a one-time pot of money and we are uh, running long-term budget deficits. Taking a look then at his spending proposals, uh, and you've had an opportunity to look at the budget now, in what areas is he looking to spend more money? Yeah, he's certainly increasing education uh, spending, and I probably want to talk a little bit more about about that and how he's doing that. Um, But there's more money for public schools, almost a billion dollars more there. There's certainly a lot more for for human services, and specifically in in Medicaid funding. Um, A lot of that is because some of the federal funds are, are expiring. Um, the state's going to have to pick up more uh, more of the tab there. Uh, and, and really more needs to be done because that's a big cost driver in, in the state budget. Uh, and one thing that is probably su- surprising, uh, especially for some of the conversations that have gone on nationally, is uh, more funding for, for police. And he actually proposes moving that offline, off the, off the general fund budget, uh, into its own account uh, to fund that separately, but uh, is an increase for, for funding state police. Let's drill down a little bit more on this education funding. Of course, we recently had somewhat of a landmark ruling by the Commonwealth Court that said the state's education funding system is unconstitutional. Of course, that's led to a feeding frenzy by the education establishment. Sounds like a billion dollars more in education spending. Looks like he's willing to give the feeding frenzy more bread to eat. Yeah, it it is a little less than a billion dollar increase for, for public schools. There was this education funding lawsuit that said uh, the way we're funding education is, is unconstitutional, uh, ruled with the, the plaintiffs, uh, but didn't go as far as some, in fact, those who were filing the suit said, well, we need $4 billion more. Uh, the ruling didn't say that. I uh, didn't even said there's some flaws with that argument that wouldn't need that much more. It was more about the, the equity and how it's distributed. While Shapiro puts more money into the system, he's, he didn't, uh, I think this is one of the biggest misses of the budget, was not uh, address changing the funding formula other than putting more money into into one side of it, uh, and didn't address expanding educational opportunity, which I think is something he campaigned on and something that is uh, really part of what was implied by, by this funding lawsuit ruling. We are talking with Nathan Benefeld of the Commonwealth Foundation. We are discussing the first budget put forward by our new governor, Josh Shapiro, particularly school funding. If you look at this whole thing, though, Nate, and you reference the fact that 
we have this big surplus of money now because of one-time federal revenue and a structural deficit looming. Adding that amount of money to education spending, what impact is that going to have on that structural deficit two or three years from now when all the federal money rents out? Yeah, basically he's taking, you know, I said we had, uh, about $7 billion uh, remaining in the state's, well, you can say the state's checking account. Um, his budget proposes um, basically draining that over three years so that we'd drain that uh, and still have a deficit of having to come up with. Uh, and then at that point, it's either raising taxes or dipping into our rainy day fund, uh, which is a very questionable practice of, of doing that. But even that would just prolong the day where we have to raise taxes. So uh, it doesn't bring, and what we think needs to happen is bringing this budget into balance. Um, you can continue to grow spending, but grow it at a rate that does bring us into balance in the next few years so we aren't facing a, a tax increase. And I think his spending plan and certainly puts us on that trajectory where um, basically in, in three to five years, uh, we're going to have to face those, those tough decisions uh, again. Isn't this a little bit deja vu here, Nate? We recall back in the administration of former Governor Tom Corbett where there was a a bump in federal money, the federal money went away, and then the Democrats and the left all started chirping that Tom Corbett cut education spending when all that happened was the federal money went away. Is this a landmine possibly for Governor Shapiro as well? Yeah, it it certainly sets that, that up. It's a, it's a little different in that for Governor Corbett, it was he came in, and his first year is when the federal funds disappeared. Governor Shapiro is coming in with a lot of this money re- remaining and having this this reserve. But it is something that by simply spending more than revenues, um, eventually that, that bill comes due, and he's setting it up for uh, for himself or, or the next governor to, to have to face that uh, that fiscal cliff when, uh, when the funds run out and, and we're spending more than revenues. Taking a look at taxes, there was uh... – substantial movement in the last legislative session to reduce the corporate net income tax. That is one of the taxes that makes Pennsylvania very uncompetitive when it comes to getting businesses to locate or expand here. What is Governor Shapiro proposing to do relative to what should be a continuation of cutting that tax? Yeah, so he has proposed at this point keeping the reduction that was passed last year. Um, it reduced us from Pennsylvania from being the second highest rate in the country down to the fifth highest in the country as of January, uh, and then small decreases over the next eight years uh, each year. He's proposed keeping that, um, but did campaign on going more aggressively to make Pennsylvania one of the most competitive states in the country. And in his speech, he said he's open to discussing that and wants to discuss it more, uh, but it wasn't something he proposed doing with, with this budget. And, and I think that's uh, you know something we need to take up and then do it sooner than later, because if you want to make uh, Pennsylvania open to business, moving us into a place where we are one of the more competitive states, I think would really send that that message. Aside from the fact that the state takes money out of our paycheck every week, the way most Pennsylvanians interact with state government is whenever we go out and drive on the roads. And there's been a lot of talk about the condition of our roads and especially our bridges and other infrastructure. Is the governor proposing in this budget to spend additional funds on infrastructure? Uh, there was not uh, any significant proposals in, in that regard. Um, we do have, I think as you are aware, one of the highest gas tax, maybe it's still the highest gas tax in, in the country. It was not, and there's been some people saying we need to re- reduce that. Um, that was not part of his, his budget. Uh, so there will be, be more money flowing through that, but not significant changes in, in how we, uh, we pay for that infrastructure. At the federal level, the president this past week also uh, did his budget address. Of course, presidential budgets are dead on arrival. 
in Congress every year. And actually, as many people know, they never actually do end up. You mentioned that with Governor Shapiro, this was the starting point. What does the process look like now going forward? The process goes from the budget address. There then was a response by legislators on what they wanted to see, really opening it up for opportunities to trade off things. Um, there's now a series of budget hearings. Um, they'll bring in all of the uh, department heads, ask questions about why uh, why there were these funding levels, and then get into actually writing and crafting a budget, which has to pass both the state house and state senate, uh, and go to the governor, um, which usually happens, thank John, in the month of on the month of June, and uh, doing a lot of that negotiation and back and forth, um, and really every policy proposal that is tied to, to spending money um, is, is part of the state budget, and so it is. Uh, not only just a spending plan and a revenue plan, but really a, a policy plan for Pennsylvania. And, and a lot of the negotiations are tied into the state budget. Nathan Benefeld, Senior Vice President at the Commonwealth Foundation. Nate, tell us a little bit about the Commonwealth Foundation. Also, can you give us a website? Because I know there's going to be a lot of analysis on the budget put out by the Commonwealth Foundation. Yeah, we are a public policy uh, research and advocacy group. Uh, it's only do a lot of uh, research into state spending and, and fiscal and economic policy. And a lot of is on our website. It's www.commonwealthfoundation.org. Nathan Benefield of the Commonwealth Foundation joins us from time to time here on Lincoln Radio Journal. Nate, thank you for being here. Thank you, Loman. Despite a U.S. Supreme Court ruling, many employees continue to have to fight for their right to work without being forced into a labor union. They get help in that battle from the Center for Independent Employees, We turn now to Keith Williams, who is Senior Vice President of the Center. Keith, we're going to talk about a number of different areas where your organization has been involved, and you've had some notable success recently. Tell us first a bit about the Center for Independent Employees. The Center for Independent Employees is a 501c3. We're a legal defense foundation that provides legal representation and aid to independent employees who are opposed to union oppression in their workplaces. That's the official what we do. Practically speaking, what that looks like is we assist employee-driven union decertification campaigns. So if employees in a workplace, public, private, wherever, decide that, hey, look, this corporate big labor is not representing us, there's not really a mechanism to help them push back. Once a union is in a workplace, there's, it's very difficult to get them out. And employees don't necessarily have the resources or the expertise to make that happen. So we provide a team of attorneys, a network of attorneys, and on-the-ground assistance to assist them in helping them make that happen. So once a union is in a workplace, Keith, they're just there in perpetuity? There isn't a periodic reauthorization vote? There are a few states where, with regard to teachers' unions, where they have a reauthorization. I believe Iowa and Florida are two. Uh, Offhand, I couldn't tell you the other ones, but in most cases... Once a union is there, yeah, they are, they are there for the duration until enough employees get together and, and find the resources and navigate the legal intricacies and figure out the window to resign, because there's a window also in most cases. They can't just kick the union out whenever. So there's, there's a very complicated process to get them out, but it's very easy to get them in. Let's talk about this process of decertifying a union, and maybe we can do it by having you give us an example of one of your recent successful efforts. Essentially, 
And teachers are a little bit different, so I, I need to give you this caveat. I'm going to talk about a couple of teachers' unions that we have just decertified. And I know education is, is a hot-button topic right now, particularly teachers' unions. And I think listeners would be encouraged to know that in many cases, the unions do not speak for teachers. And they love to conflate, union leadership loves to conflate teachers with unions. But the reality is most teachers are, I think, as a, as a whole, if you, if you poll teachers, we all tend to, and I say we, I taught for 21 years, by the way, in a public school, but teachers tend to trend center left, but they don't generally hold the extreme views that you'll see on libs of TikTok or any of that kind of stuff that, uh, that's out there. Um, and that, that's actually backed up by a Heritage Foundation study. James Paul did a study just a few years back that, you know, arrived at that same conclusion. So we're going to talk about teachers unions. I decertified, actually, CIE um, helped teachers in um, four more school districts just recently, two in January and then two more in February. And the kicker to it is, in in a state like Pennsylvania um, and in, in many states, there's this window to remove the union, much like if a an employee wants to get out of a union, you may have encountered a maintenance of membership window. It's sort of the same idea. Unions have limited employees to a window when they can get the union out. And obviously, it's in their best interest to, to make it as difficult and complicated as possible. And so um, what we did in the case of these teachers was it's difficult to ask teachers to leave something for nothing, first of all. So there's a lot of talk about opt-outs, opt-out campaigns, and things like that. And it, it's it's a hard ask when someone has been um, in a collective bargaining unit for a long time to say, okay, we're going to go with nothing. So particularly in the teacher space, one of the things that we found really effective was to offer them not this binary thing of union, no union, but in the teacher space, offer them what I would call an independent local union. So it's essentially a C5. They do collectively bargain, but they are not affiliated state and national. But with teachers in particular, we go in and we help them basically break away from the NEA and do their own thing locally and independently. So they get the money out of big labor. They get the money out of the five and six-figure salaries, the six-figure salaries of Randy Weingarten and, and Becky Pringle. Um, so they don't have the overhead of big labor. So it's sort of a sort of a baby step toward labor freedom, uh, employment freedom, but it's it's a bit of a paradigm shift in that regard. And so we've we've assisted four school districts in Kansas so far, and we have a few more in other states ready to go, but overall we've done 40 of them in seven different states at this point. So it's a pretty exciting trend. At the national level, there are also labor-related issues, uh, particularly relative to the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. They're looking at some proposed rulemaking that could have a real impact on franchisees and independent contractors. Want to tell us what's going on there? There is a proposed rule change, the joint employer rule. Um, and basically what it does is it it defines or redefines a joint employer. And what they're looking to do there, unions, and when I say unions, I'm talking capital U, corporate big labor, as I like to call it, they want to try to consolidate power wherever they can. And the gig economy, we'll call it, you know, Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and people who are 1099 independent contractors, that would include freelance writers. In this case, we're also looking at um, franchisees. So if you own a franchised 
restaurant. Essentially, what unions are looking to do is is make the argument, and the NLRB is proposing this rule change that would say, if you are a franchisee and I'm working for this franchisee, I am actually working for the corporation, not for the franchisee. And so by doing that, it just it consolidates the employees and it makes them this huge bargaining unit that they can then be more effective in unionizing or push for another term, sectoral bargaining, which is a hot topic right now as well. If you've been following anything going on in California, you have AB5 that essentially does away with independent truckers and forces them to be tied in with a larger company. The idea there is their employees, they're eligible to be unionized. And so it does away with their autonomy, but it also provides unions with an opportunity to basically garnish wages. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about joint employer. A lot of challenges facing workers all across the country. We have been talking with Keith Williams with the Center for Independent Employees. And Keith, do you have a website where folks can go if they want more information or perhaps might need the services of the center? You can uh, take a look at our website at centerforindependentemployees.org. Keith Williams from the Center for Independent Employees. Keith, thank you for joining us. Thank you. President Joe Biden and Governor Josh Shapiro both gave their budget addresses this past week, but the policy prescriptions were vastly different. Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania has details on this Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. This week, many Pennsylvanians have likely heard, seen, and read more about budgeting than they ever have before, with Governor Shapiro's budget address being delivered in Harrisburg on Tuesday and President Biden's budget being presented in an unorthodox fashion from a union hall in Philadelphia. Both this new Congress and this new state General Assembly have something in common to their respective executives, a changed landscape. Both Governor Shapiro and President Biden will be required to garner bipartisan consensus as split legislatures now exist in Harrisburg and in Washington. Democrats took the majority in the state House and Republicans remain in control of the state Senate, whereas Republicans took the majority in the U.S. House and Democrats remain in control of the Senate. With change leadership and legislative composition, we should be encouraged by the potential of new opportunity. In Harrisburg, Governor Shapiro's plan for the next fiscal year, beginning July 1st of this calendar year, plans for $44.4 billion in spending, a 4% increase over this year's budget. Some of the themes included fortified access to emergency services, increased K-12 and post-secondary education spending, and greater support for seniors, those with disabilities, and those with mental health struggles. Each of the caucuses from the House and Senate responded to the governor's address. Several areas where AFP found hope were in the governor's continued support for a reduction of our corporate net income tax rate, enthusiasm for common sense criminal justice measures like probation reform, and a commitment to addressing permitting and energy issues. 
House Appropriations Republican Chair Seth Grove noted, There are some policy points that give us pause, but other initiatives that are, are refreshing to see, such as working to eliminate DEP permitting backlogs. As many Pennsylvanians reconcile their increased energy bills, Senate Majority Leader Joe Pittman noted, The governor's budget, while not in his address, still acknowledges our entrance into the regional greenhouse gas initiative. And, as the budget documents indicate, this is a $600 million tax on every consumer of electricity in this Commonwealth. So while we talk about the need to raise wages and we talk about the need to allow folks to make ends meet, we need to acknowledge the fact that affordable electricity is absolutely crucial to making that happen. House Majority Leader Matt Bradford said, This is a governor who covered every issue thoroughly, but covered it with a recognition that we're in a moment in time in this commonwealth, in this place, in this chamber, to do something really special for Pennsylvania. We must collaborate with our Republican friends. This is the time to get to work. And we could not agree more. Well, with respect to President Biden's plan, we see a myriad of tax hike proposals, including a raise on some payroll taxes. Of his proposal, the president said, I want to make it clear, I'm gonna raise some taxes. We might also expect more price controls. As our policy team reviews the federal budget, We'll highlight the areas of greatest concern and ask for your partnership in lobbying our congressional delegation to stand against irresponsible spending. As budget hearings and negotiations commence, Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania is committed to keeping your voice alive in the conversations happening in our state and nation's capitals. There are 253 members in Harrisburg and 19 in our congressional delegation who need to hear from us so they can be held accountable for their support of responsible budgeting and rejection of reckless spending at our expense. The economic reality for Pennsylvania is we rank fourth for highest tax rates in the nation, which is contributing to our problematic outbound migration trend. We can and must do better. Keep up to date on Facebook at PAAFP on Twitter, at AFP Pennsylvania, and on our newly unveiled chapter website at keystoneplaybook.com. I'm Ashley Klingensmith, State Director with Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our website's lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will be the special guest speaker at this year's Pennsylvania Leadership Conference, which is the premier annual gathering of grassroots conservatives every year here in the Keystone State. This year's Pennsylvania Leadership Conference will be held March 30th through April 1st at the Penn Harris Hotel in Camp Hill. In addition to Governor DeSantis, speakers include Kellyanne Conway as the featured dinner speaker, She will be joined by Guy Benson of Fox News and John Gizzi of Newsmax as conference headline speakers. 
There will be workshops, seminars, panels, and additional speakers, complete information, a preliminary agenda, and registration for the 2023 Pennsylvania Leadership Conference can be found at paleadershipconference.org. That's paleadershipconference.org. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, and the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania. Thank you.